Good morning. Good morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is good to see each of you that are here this morning and welcome you to our time of corporate worship here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Before we begin our worship, before we begin our time of worship today, uh, a couple of announcements to make. Um, Sister Ann is working the polls, and she reminds us that Tuesday is the time to vote and go do our civic duty. So we'll see Sister Ann on Tuesday. And uh, remember to, to vote. We continue to, here we go, continue to collect money in the baby bottles that is due on Father's Day. This money change, loose change, goes to Skylark. And the it's a local organization that helps unwed mothers and try to avoid uh, abortions and to continue with their pregnancies. That's a good work. And so the baby bottles, there's a few of them left on the counter just outside the door. And every year we do that, so please be mindful of that. And if you haven't gotten your baby bottle, please pick it up and throw your loose change or your folding money or whatever into the baby bottle. And be sure to turn them in by Father's Day so we can get them back to Skyline. I don't know of other announcements. I know we have several that I will be mentioning when it comes time for the prayer, but I don't know of other announcements at this time. Anybody have uh, announcements concerning the church? Not hearing any. Uh, our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 9, the first two verses. I'll read these two verses, and then we will uh, sing a hymn. And of course, we're continuing to have our hymns. Uh, have our hymns on the uh, screen, and so uh, we'll stand and sing the hymn, and then we may stand for the invitation. I'm assuming you'll call on somebody to do that for that. I can. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> so Psalm chapter nine, the first two verses. It's to the choir master. According to Ruth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Stand together and sing praises to God, our Most High. Oh 
mercy and grace. We thank you for this beautiful day. Even though it's rainy, we know, Lord, that you're in control and we need the rain and you're watering the earth. But, Lord, we pray as we come today that you would water our souls, as it were, with your word. You would nourish us and help us and strengthen us. And, Lord, most of all, that we would glorify your wonderful name in the earth. And, Lord, bless the preaching and the singing and the praying that it would be for your glory, for your honor. And, Lord, that you would bless your word to go forth in power, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 shade. 
the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the fields feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have buried it with fire. Excuse me, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then you shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. May God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. kingdom prayer. There are several that are listed on the um, screen. Thank the Lord. 
sister Ned had surgery and started out supposed to have been some, somewhat minor, but it turned into uh, rather major surgery. And uh, but she's home, and um, uh, improving, but continue uh, to pray for her. Her recovery will continue to go well. Brother David Pate is hopefully will have his surgery that he's needed now for some time. Had to be postponed because of the of the virus, but now they had him on the schedule, so we're prayerful that that will be able to go through and help him that he's been in for months now. Um, <clears throat> Pastor Murray Brett, the Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Commerce, Georgia. His dad had uh, broken his leg and was in the hospital in Savannah, and then they found out he has the COVID-19, and so they had to isolate him, and his daughter was with him, so now she's in isolation, so we remember that family also. And Murray Brett, uh, his dad, Murray's been with us before. It's been a little while since he's been here, but he's been he's been here before with us. And then <clears throat> more of a international uh, Nigerian pastor and Calvin Seminary grad is gunned down and his wife on their farm. We think we have things bad here, but in Nigeria, this couple leaves behind uh, eight children. He was shot, and his wife both shot and killed, um, just working on their farm. Thankfully, their children were not there. Uh, if I can get down, they were killed by the, um, let's see, they're members of Christian Reformed Church in Nigeria, uh, Boko Haram, jihadist, Islamist terrorist, uh, one that's responsible. And I wanted to get down to the number see it real fast. Let's see. Excuse me, sorry. I linked the article and I didn't highlight. ranks as the 12th worst country in the world for Christian persecution. Uh, yeah, 620 Christians have been killed in Nigeria uh, so far in 2020. So um, it's, it's a deliberate targeting, targeting of Christians in Nigeria. So 620 uh, since uh, the beginning of this year have been killed. So yeah, we're dealing with some issues here, uh, social distancing. They're dealing with um, deliberate murder and persecution. So let's remember the family of Christ around the world as we pray today. Yes. Jarrell. Jarrell. Yes, thank you. The death of her grandson. Thank you very much, Ann. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Sister Jarrell Johnson, her, her grandson died this past week from an overdose. Okay. Let's go to the Lord. Holy Father, it seems that so much of the news we hear is bad news and distressing news and news of hate and distress. And again, Peter said that we ought not to be surprised when we are 
find ourselves in the midst of fiery troubles and trials and tribulations as if some strange thing has come upon us. And we know that even from the time of the first sin that was committed and you pronounced the judgment and curse upon humanity and upon the earth itself that there has been a struggle and that there has been not only a struggle with uh, environment and survival and just the difficulties of life, but there is indeed a war that rages. And it's not just the war of the, uh, between people, a war between nations. It is indeed a spiritual war and a war of kingdoms because this too has been pronounced as well. And hate and violence and murder and rage and um, constant um, settlement that we see in the world or tools and weaponry of this war their extensions of it and yet it seems that so often we go along and we 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 look more at the immediate causes and we are often blind to deeper uh, spiritual causes that are at play. And we're thankful that in the midst of a sinful, deadly world where often the victims are people that are somewhat on the sidelines or people that seem to be engaged in trying to do that which is good and right like this pastor and yet we're all sons of Adam sons and daughters of Adam and we know that all of us have penalty of death in us and that there are none good no not one and that we all need the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, we plead this morning for the righteousness and also give expression of thankfulness for the righteousness of Christ. For in a world that we hear so much bad news, we are so grateful that there is wonderful, glorious blessed good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is forgiveness of sin. That there is hope. That there is indeed true love, eternal love. Uncompromising, unfailing love of God. 
and that nothing can separate your people from the love of Christ, nothing present, nothing to come, no height, no depth, not anything, no creature, no spiritual power, nothing can separate those that are in Christ Jesus from the love of God. And we're grateful for the great and glorious news of the gospel that any that come to Christ and profess and confess their sins and faith are received. It matters not if they've been a terrorist or if they've been a seditionist or whoever they have been. If they've been a Pharisee or whatever, or whomever, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Help us, Lord, to lay hold more completely and more firmly of that reality and to declare it more boldly in this day. For all around us we see, we hear, and we experience bad news. Help us to get up on the rooftop and the mountaintop and declare our Savior and that our warfare is done and complete and our victory is complete. And for these that have been mentioned and their various needs, while we pray for physical relief, we know that that is very important. And we're taught to pray. If any among us is afflicted, they should call for the elders of the church. So Lord, we pray, we, we do pray, and we would pray for each other's needs. Physical needs, material needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. We ask that we could grow more closely, uh, close together and that this uh, time of uh, separation that we're still experiencing could more quickly be resolved and minimized and we could begin to see this place of worship begin to uh, begin to fill up more on the Lord's day. Well, we fear that your people are drifting and as they drift away further we become more open to more fears and doubts and temptations. So Lord we just ask that you would imprint upon all of us um, a desire to worship you, to be thankful, and to realize the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless our dear brothers, he comes before us to preach the gospel, give him liberty, give us ears to hear, as the Spirit would say. Uh, to those that have ears, may, may we hear. Let us hear what the Spirit would say to us. 
Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, Lord, from the evil one. Truly thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Through Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.
Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to once again have this opportunity to worship our great God together this morning. Um, I've sensed this uh, lately, especially with some of Pastor Thomas's emails and, and just some of the conversations that we've had um, around the church, but just a reminder to y'all, um, you know the Lord's Day truly is a special day. I'm sure that most everyone in here, if you were to look back on your lives, and, and you would see that the Lord's Day um, has had the most profound impact on your life more than any other day. I know for me personally, the teaching that I have received during the Lord's Day, um, week in and week out, um, has been the most impactful thing in my life. Uh, most of what I know about the most important things in life, about God, about man, the church, um, salvation, the family, um, and so forth, have been most firmly established um, from listening to the word being preached on the Lord's Day. And not only has this day been important from an instructional standpoint, but there is something special about meeting together corporately with the people of God um, on the day that he has appointed us to do so. Uh, you can learn a great deal on your own as a Christian. Um, there's all sorts of resources you can learn um, about the, the things of, of the Christian faith on your own, but you cannot replace what you can learn um, from being uh, gathered together with the people of God on the Lord's Day. Uh, one of the things that becoming involved week in and week out um, in a church um, is that you get, the, you, you get a front row seat to see how God in His providence works in people's lives and causes them to become more and more like Christ. And I've had the privilege of seeing that over the last 10 years. I've seen how God in His providence works in each and every one of your lives and how you're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And I think that's just been more on my mind lately, uh, especially due to the fact that we've had disruption in our normal way of meeting. Um, and so I just want to sincerely encourage you to make much of the Lord's Day and the gathering of God's people. And a reminder to you as well, you know the Lord's Day, the, the weekly Sabbath, is a foretaste of that eternal Sabbath. And every week that we meet together to worship on the Sabbath day is another week closer to that eternal Sabbath. And that ought to both excite us, but it also ought to cause us to um, number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. So that said, um, I wasn't given a topic or an assigned text today, so I decided to approach this message from sort of a selfish perspective. Um, I've tried to examine my own heart, my own life, um, and also just looking at the world around us, um, sort of the climate that we're in right now. Um, and the text that kept coming back to my mind was John chapter 15. And the reason John 15 kept coming to my mind was two things in particular. One was the phrase that Jesus used in describing himself as the true vine. And hopefully we'll get into that a good bit this morning. And secondly, because in this passage, I believe we find the purpose for our lives summed up. And that purpose, put simply, is this. We are to abide in Christ and to bear fruit for Him. That is the great aim of our lives, to recognize that Christ is the true vine, that we are completely and utterly dependent upon Him. And because of that, our aim is to abide, that is to live in complete dependence upon Him, and through His supplied grace, we are to seek to live in such a way that brings Him glory, that is to bear fruit for Him. So that in mind, if you would, please um, turn with me to John chapter 15. 
And we're going to read together verses 1 through 17. This is God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let us pray. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for your holy word that you have given to us. And we thank you for this, this wonderful passage of scripture that we have before us that we have just been able to read. We thank you that it records for us Jesus' final hours, his final time teaching his disciples alone uh, before his crucifixion and death. Lord, it is our desire that the word that we have heard this morning, that it would abide in us and that you would use it to cause us to bear fruit, that you would use your word to sanctify us. Oh Lord, may you make us a pleasing sight and a pleasing aroma in your sight. Father, help us this morning, for we can do nothing on our own. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, as I have sought to study this passage this week, uh, many things have stood out in my mind concerning John 15, verses 1 through 17. And one of those things is this, that this passage is just absolutely packed full of truth. Um, and it's packed full of profound, doctrinal, and practical truths that are foundational to the Christian faith. And I want you to just quickly notice with me some of these great doctrinal matters that these few verses t um, touch on. And if you're listen, listening online, um, grab a Bible and look at these verses um, with us. Now these are in no particular order, but I just want you to see how many 
great truths are found in just these few verses. So look at verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So in these verses we learn something of Christ's love for his people. And that is a profound truth. In fact, that's sort of the main theme of John 13 through 17 is the love of Christ for his people. Flip back over to verses 1 and 2. There it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we see something in this passage of the Father's role in the sanctifying of his people. Okay? Also in verse 2, it says that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then down in verse 6, those branches are gathered together and thrown into the fire and burn. So in this passage, we learn about God's judgment of the wicked. Also in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So in this passage, we learn something of the reality that there are false believers within the midst of the covenant community. There are people who claim to be in Christ and they are not in Christ. So we learn something about that in this passage. Uh, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then at the end of verse 5, you can do nothing apart from him. So we learn something in this passage of the absolute necessity of union with Christ for spiritual life. And closely connected to that doctrine is the doctrine of the total moral inability Sometimes we call that total depravity. The total moral inability for people to do anything that is pleasing to God. And that includes repentance and faith apart from the enabling grace that comes from union with Christ. Okay, look at verse 8. It says, Those who bear much fruit prove to be disciples of Christ. So in this passage we learn the reality that a person's salvation will be evidenced by a changed life. They will bear fruit. Then in, in verses 9, 10, and 16, um, as the Father has loved me. So we see something of the love and the unity that is present between the Father and the Son. We see something of the intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Godhead and that there's a harmony within the Trinity. Look at verse 10. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we learn something here of Christ's act of obedience, which is absolutely necessary for our salvation, for apart from his act of obedience, we cannot be saved. So that's a very profound and important truth in this passage. Then in verse 13, we see a foreshadowing of Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of his people. He says that he will lay down his life for his friends. Of course, that is the heart of the gospel there. And then closely connected to that in verse 13, we see the particular scope of the redemptive work of Christ. He does not lay down his life indiscriminately for everyone. He lays down his life for his friends. So we see the particular scope of Christ's redemptive work. Then in verse 16, we see the sovereignty of God in salvation, particularly the doctrine of election. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So we see the sovereignty of God in salvation and the doctrine of election. And then in verse 15, he calls us friends. 
And so we see something of the closeness of our relationship to Christ and the staggering truth that if we be in Christ, the Creator and the Judge of all the earth calls us His friends. And then in verses 7 and 16 where it talks about if you ask what you wish and it will be done for you, we see something here that the basis of an effectual prayer life is grounded in our union with Christ. So that was 13 major doctrines just in 17 verses. And I'm sure that there are more that I overlooked there. But I did that because I want you to see the richness of God's Word. That there's so much in His Word if you just take the time to look for it. Alright, with that in mind, let us go into the context of this passage. So what is the context of John chapter 15? Well, this rich passage comes in the larger context of Jesus' final hours alone with His disciples in the upper room, which is recorded for us in John chapter 13 through 17. And it's often called the upper room discourse. And one of the things that is so evident in this upper room discourse is the love that Jesus had for his disciples. And that reminded me of something that I've heard many times concerning the final hours of Jesus' time that he spent with his disciples. And that is this. If you knew, and Jesus did, that you only had a few hours left to minister to those whom you care for, um, what would you do? Well, you wouldn't waste time talking about trivial matters. You would spend your time talking about things that matter, things that matter eternally, things that matter for the well-being of those whom you talk to. And you also would take the time to let them know how much you love them. That's what you would do if you only had a few hours left with people you love. And I think that's what we see here in the words and the actions of Jesus. Remember, he just got done washing the disciples' feet. So in his words and actions, Jesus is showing that he loves them very much. Frankly, he preaches the gospel to them in this section of the Bible. And he lets them know just how much he loves them, and he instructs them concerning the implications of the gospel, mainly that it results in love towards God and love towards others. So that's the context. Um, And there's no way that I can cover all that needs to be covered in this passage. I just showed you there's so many doctrines in this passage, so we can't cover all of that. But what I would like to do today is address the following three questions with you. And those three questions are, question number one, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the true vine? Question number two, what does it mean to bear fruit? And then question number three, what does it mean to abide in Christ and how can you abide in Christ? So our first question, what does it mean when Jesus says that he is the true vine? Well, look with me again at verse 1. So what does Jesus tell us here? He says, I am the true vine. Now this is the last of what are called the I am statements we find in the Gospel of John. Um, And those I am statements are as follows. He says that he is the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. This one's not considered sometimes as an I am statement, but I I view it as one as well. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, I am the true vine. So what makes these I am statements so important? Well, I'm sure that most of you are probably aware that these statements are significant because they show us the deity of Christ. 
If you need any evidence that Jesus is God, go to the I am statements. They identify Jesus with that statement that God made to Moses. I am that I am. But let us put these statements a little closer to our level. Why is Jesus saying I am so important? Well, the reason is because you and I are not. Where Jesus says I am, we must say I am not. Brothers and sisters, when we compare ourselves to the standards set forth in Scripture, we must confess that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's so easy for us to say that, but that's really, really bad news. Because if you fall short of the glory of God, you must go to hell. That's the result of that. But there is hope. If and only if our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our representative, who is our federal head, if he is, and he most certainly is. So then those words of Jesus where he says, I am, they become very sweet words indeed to those of us who are not. You see, as you dig deeper into what these I am statements reveal to us about our, who our Savior is, you begin to see that all you need is found in him. And that, my friends, is so important as we seek to understand the gospel message. Another thing we must realize, brothers and sisters, is that when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl becomes a Christian, it's not just a decision that's made. Something supernatural happens when a person becomes a Christian. If you have been born again, if you have been saved, you really have become a new creature in Christ. And as a result of that, you have become a creature of such a sublime nature that nothing in this world can satisfy you, that the only thing that can satisfy your soul is Christ. That song that we love to sing, uh, Amazing Grace, that, that line where it says, I once was blind, but now I see. That is a, such an apt description of conversion. Because at conversion, for the first time, you are fitted. You are given the capacity to see Jesus as he is. And you see him as altogether lovely. You see him in those I am statements that we read. You see him as the bread of life that you must feed upon. You see him as the light of the world that has shown you your sin and shown you the way of salvation. You see clearly that he was before Abraham, that he truly is the Alpha and the Omega from everlasting to everlasting. You see him as the door, the only door and your only hope. You see him as the good shepherd that has laid his life down for you. You see him as your resurrection and your life. And you realize that he is the only way and that all truth abides in him and that he is life itself. And finally, you realize that he is the true vine, the source of every good thing, but most especially he is the source of your spiritual life and your eternal life and that you can do nothing apart from him. So you, when you begin to see those realities, it changes everything. Uh, think through the following things with me. You might say, well, my life is just not complete. <clears throat> well, of course not. You live in a fallen world. It's, it's never going to be complete. Or you might say, my wife or my husband or my family does not complete me. Well, that's a good thing because if it could, you'd be lost. You might say, my job does not fulfill me. Again, if it could, you'd be an unbeliever. I'll say it again. If you are a Christian, you have been recreated so that the only one that can satisfy you is Jesus. 
which is why it is so useless to go after these other things, to seek them as vines in your life. But let me let you in on a little secret about the Christian life that you already know. Um, Yes, you have been recreated if you're a Christian, but you still have remaining sin. You still are not completely sanctified, and because of that, you will go after other things. You will chase after other things and seek to be satisfied by those things, and they will leave you empty and disappointed. And that is why we have the second part of verse 1. That is why we need the Father to be a vine dresser in our life. It says that He is the vine dresser. says, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we need to be pruned. And this is why we will face various trials in this life. Things from within us and things from outside. And all of these trials are intended to do one thing. They are intended to drive you back to the only source that can satisfy your soul. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now let us look further into the statement, I am the true vine. If you notice here, he didn't say, I am a vine. He also didn't say, I am the vine. But he said, I am the true vine. So what that means is that there are other vines out there which are not true vines. There are false vines. And you found some of those vines in your life, I'm sure. We've talked about some of them, some of them already such as family and jobs. But let us consider what probably came to mind to the mind of the disciples when they heard Jesus say he was the true vine. You see, in the Old Testament, we are told that God went into Egypt and he brought out a vine, and that vine was Israel. Uh, Pastor John read that earlier for us in, from Psalm 80. So he went into Egypt and he brought out a vine, and that vine was Israel. But the Old Testament shows us that this vine was not a fruitful vine. This vine was a failure. And ultimately, that vine was destroyed. And so we have Jesus here in this passage. He's contrasting himself with Israel. And we can learn many things from this, but one thing for sure that we learn is that there is no institution that can supply your need of spiritual life. No institution can provide your need for forgiveness of your sins. No institution can give you the righteousness that you need in order to stand before a holy God. Simply being an ethnic Jew in their time was not enough to give you spiritual life. In in our day now, the church cannot give you spiritual life. Again, it is only Jesus Christ and Him alone that can supply your need of spiritual life. It is only Christ that can atone for your sins, and it is only the righteousness of Christ credited to your account that can make you acceptable in the sight of God. Before we move on, I want to give you a verse from Jeremiah that deals with this matter before us. Um, It's in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says the following. And I want you to listen to the reaction of God to to this. It says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Then he says, Be appalled, O heavens. It's almost like he's turning to the, to the host of heaven and he's telling them, Look at these people. And he's saying, Be appalled at what they are doing. Be, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Same thing as saying the true vine. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We have seen this tendency in mankind throughout all of history. We see it in the garden. We saw it in the people of Israel, and we see it in our own lives today. We have a tendency to seek out things other than God and to place our hope in things, people, institutions, and causes rather than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said he is the true vine. Therefore, far be it from us to look elsewhere, but let us wholly lean upon the person and the work of Christ. Let's move on to our second question. What does it mean to bear fruit? Now, if you in this passage, you can't get away from the idea that fruit is important because it's repeated over and over again. But what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, the concept of bearing fruit is of extreme importance. Do you realize that um, the purpose for which you have been saved, if you have been saved, is to bear fruit? Uh, look at verse 8 with me. It says, By this my Father is glorified. By what is the Father glorified? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples? <clears throat> Out there on our sign we have the phrase solo deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. And that is the grand purpose of redemption, is that God will be glorified. You see, the miracle of God causing a person who was once a God-hating, God-indifferent, sinful human being to then become a person that bears fruit that glorifies God. That is only possible through the wisdom, the power, um, the love, and the grace of our great God. That is truly a miracle, and God gets glory for that. So when we bear fruit, like that's, that, is, that is because that glorifies God because that can only happen because of the grace and the power of God in our lives. Let's consider three aspects of this idea of bearing fruit that we see in this passage. Number one, the warning to those who do not bear fruit. Verse two says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So he doesn't say here, everyone who denies me verbally, or nor does he say, everyone who stands against me publicly will be taken away. No, that's, that's a given. If you're already outside of um, the community of God, you're already taken away. But what he says here is, even those that confess him as Lord, those who consider themselves to be branches united to the true vine, if they do not bear fruit, they will be taken away. So what does it mean to be taken away? Well, it is a hard truth, but verse 6 sheds light on that for us. And that is ultimately that being taken away means that fruitless people will be thrown into hell on judgment day. Verse 6 clearly says that fruitless branches will be gathered up and thrown into the fire to be burned. And yes, that is a hard truth, and it refers to the ultimate judgment upon fruitless branches. But let us, for a moment, consider the immediate judgment that we see to, towards fruitless branches. It says that they will be taken away and left to wither until that great and awful day of the Lord. So what are they taken away from? Well, verse 1 says that they are taken away from the true vine. Now, how does the Father take branches away from the true vine? Well, he can do this in a number of ways. 
Think about this. Think about children who grow up in godly homes and grow up in biblical churches and yet they have no love for Christ. And then as soon as the, their parental restraints are removed from them, what do they do? They run to the world and they run away from the true vine. They run away from the source of, their, of the only source that they could have for their salvation. So that is a way that God can remove people from the true vine. He removes branches that way. Others invent a God of their own imagination and, and so they are led away into churches that are, no, that are really not churches, churches that do not preach the gospel. And so they think they're still in the true vine, but they are being taken away by the Father to false vines. And we can go on and on looking at the ways that people are cut off. Um, another example would be a young person who meets someone and they chase after that person and they go away from what they know to be right and true and, and they drift away. So God takes them away from the true vine. See, these are manifestations of the judgment of God that are happening every day throughout the world. Think about people who seem committed to Christ, but as soon as they meet with some trial, they drift away. Or those that seem to come to God during a low point in their life, only to fall away once their lives get back together again. So God can use those types of judgments to remove people from the true vine. But can, He can also use more drastic measures um, this has been on my mind a lot lately, especially with the coronavirus and, and you're seeing death toll numbers all the time on, on the TV. Do you know that every day approximately 150,000 people die in this world? And if you could just imagine, if you were to kind of be able to look back, look at the world from afar, and every time somebody dies, you see a soul going to God to be judged. If you were to see that, just think of how many times that would be moving. It's just the one thing that's happening on this earth right now is that God is dealing with people. That is the most real thing that's happening on this planet right now, that God is dealing with people and that people are going to meet God in judgment. And yet we don't, we don't think about that very often. We don't see that because it's an invisible reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. And we know that if the Lord tarries, that one day we will die also. And when we die, the reality is it will be God who is the one that kills us. It is God who is the one that takes away our lives. You understand that death is not a natural thing. I've, I've heard people you know, all the time say that you know, it's just as natural as you know, uh, birth and, and death. Well, birth is natural, but death, however, is supernatural. It is the judgment of God against sin. It is the tearing of the soul and the body, putting them asunder. It is, it is an unnatural thing. And if you are not one who is bearing fruit when God comes to take your life, He will then throw you into hell. That's what verse 6 tells us. If you are a fruitless branch, you'll be gathered together and thrown into the fire to be burned. Um, there's a strange saying that has been, that's made its way around in Christian circles, and I've heard it um, too much, I think. And that saying is this, that God doesn't throw anybody into hell. Instead, He just honors their choice. Um, brothers and sisters, that's not true. Um, God really does throw people into hell because of their sin, because of their fruitlessness. Um, that's a hard saying, but it is true, which is why we must honestly examine ourselves and answer the question, do you bear fruit? Um, do I bear fruit? That truly is a question with eternal significance. Or another aspect um, with regards to this idea of bearing fruit. 
Look again at verses 1 and 2. There it says, My Father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So one of the greatest evidences that you have truly been truly converted is this. And that is, is God in His providence molding you into the image of Christ? Have you and are you experiencing the disciplining hand of God in your life? You see, if you're a Christian, you can't do the things that others do in this world and get away with it. You will be disciplined if you are a Christian. If you are able to regularly participate in worldliness and sin without any problems, without any conviction from the Holy Spirit, then something is wrong. And it may be an evidence that the Father is not a vine dresser in your life, which means that He isn't your Father. But take heart. If you are struggling with sin and when you sin, you perceive that God is disciplining you. That is a good thing. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11 says the following. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see that? What does this disciplining or this pruning of the Father lead to? Well, Hebrews tells us it leads to holiness. It leads to the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It leads to fruit. So we must move on. Uh, time's getting away from me here. Um, so we learn from this passage that if you are a Christian, you will bear fruit. Um, the life-giving power that flows from the vine to you and the wise pruning of the Father will cause you to bear fruit. Now this means as a Christian, you should expect, you, as a Christian, you should expect to have increasing victory over sin over the course of your life. And you should expect to have real positive growth in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. If this is not happening in your life, you need to honestly examine yourself in the light of this passage and ask yourself, do you bear fruit? So that leads to the third aspect here. We need to answer the question, what is fruit? We've firmly established that fruit is very important and that if you don't bear fruit, that means you will go to hell. And if you do bear fruit, that proves that you are a Christian. But what is fruit? Um, <clears throat> notice that the passage does not say um, that you are supposed to do great and mighty things, thereby proving yourself to be a disciple of Christ. It says you must bear fruit. It never says you must do great and mighty things. In fact, Matthew 7 says that there will be people who do great and mighty things in the name of Christ, and yet they will end up in hell because they never knew Christ. You must understand that you can do great things, even great things in ministry, and yet be utterly devoid of saving grace and completely severed from the life-giving vine, which is Jesus Christ. So what is fruit? Look at verses 10 with me. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Then also look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then down in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Well, it is evident from this passage that what is meant by bearing fruit is keeping the commandments of God and in particular keeping the commandment to love one another. Perhaps fruit is best summed up by what we see in Galatians 5, 22 through 23 where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruit is ultimately a 
It is a Christ-like character. And to the degree that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, that is how much fruit we are bearing. So if you want to bear fruit, become more like Christ. That is what bearing fruit is. So again, I ask the question, do you bear fruit? All right, let's go to our third question that we started from at the beginning. And that is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? And how can we abide in Christ? Well, when we read this passage, it is impossible to not notice the word abide. In verses 4 through 10, it is repeated 10 different times. My, Bible, my, my study Bible, um, in its note on the word abide, it says that the word abide is used to emphasize the permanence and the steadfastness of the relationship between Christ and his disciples. And the metaphor of the vine illustrates the point that it is only when nutrients are flowing from the vine to the branch that the fruit, that fruit can be born. Now it is abundantly clear from this passage that we must abide in Christ that spiritual life can only be found by abiding in Christ and that we can only bear fruit if we abide in Christ. But we need to know what it means to abide in Christ if we are to do so. Now, you can be told all day long to abide in Christ, but if you don't know what it means, how, how can you do that? Well, the word abide simply means this. It means to remain or continue. It means that we must remain bodily connected to Christ. Now, when we consider what it means to abide in Christ, we must realize that there are two sides of the coin here, like there is with many truths in Christianity. Uh, one side of this truth is this. You could say that our abiding in Christ is positional, and the other side of that is you could say our abiding in Christ is experiential. So it is true, if you are truly in Christ, truly connected to the true vine, you can never be vitally separated from Christ. You can never be a fruit-bearing branch one day and then later become a barren branch that is cut off. It's not possible. So there is a sense in which our abiding in Christ refers to our position in Christ, and that cannot be changed. But the other side of the coin is this, and that is our abiding in Christ is to be an experiential reality in our lives. What is needed here is for us to understand that we must live in a continuous dependence upon the vine. D.A. Carson puts it as follows. He says, The point is clear. Continuous dependence upon the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life, and imbibing means to drink or absorb, this is the indispensable and essential action, condition, or ingredient of spiritual faithfulness, that, that continuous dependence upon the vine. So basically what is being said is, is this, to abide in Christ is to live in a profound dependence upon God. That's what it means to abide in Christ. Paul Washer says the following. He says, What is the most dishonoring thing that you can do before God? The most dishonoring thing you can do before God is to be independent, to go your own way, to do things your own way. If you think about that, that is central to the gospel message. Until a man's independence is stripped, he will not come to Christ. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we realize our absolute need of a Savior. And brothers and sisters, that sense of dependence upon the Savior, it doesn't diminish at, uh, after you become a Christian. In fact, to the contrary, that sense of dependence upon God will get stronger and stronger the longer you are in Christ. 
Because the longer you're in Christ, you'll see yourself as more and more sinful. And you'll see Christ as more and more holy and worthy to be served. So the, the longer we are in Christ, we should see that dependence upon God increasing and increasing. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. So in closing, I want to give you three practical ways to abide in Christ that we have seen from this passage. And I've got commentary on each of these things, but I think I'll just sort of state them and, and briefly um, comment on them. So three ways that you can, um, three practical ways that you can abide in Christ. Number one, abiding in Christ requires continuous dependence on the Word of God. Okay? We see that in verse 7. So we must be continually dependent upon the Word of God if we are to abide in Christ. And that's something you, I'm sure you've heard if you're a Christian and been in the church most of your life. You've heard that so many times that I'm sure it's just it's so familiar it don't even really strike you anymore. But it's, it's, so, it's such an important thing that we must be people of the book. We must be people who, who constantly, daily go to the Word of God. And that's how we can depend upon and abide in Christ as we depend upon the Word of God. Uh, number two. Abiding in Christ requires continuous dependence upon God in prayer. So I'm not giving you anything new, am I? You've heard that your whole life. What should you do if you're a Christian? You should be in the Word of God and you should spend time with God in prayer. So how do you abide in Christ? You must be dependent upon God in prayer. And then thirdly, abiding in Christ means to be utterly convinced and persuaded of Christ's love for you. That is perhaps probably the most important aspect of abiding in Christ, to be utterly convinced and persuaded that Christ loves you. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me one more time. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We must realize that the only reason we even love the Lord in the first place is because He first loved us. We are not to try and earn God's love by our obedience, but it is our abiding in the love of Christ that leads to our obedience. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy tells us that the mystery of godliness is the redemptive work of Christ. It is the gospel, it is the message of the gospel that leads to godliness. It is being um, impacted in your life. Uh, you see that that is your only hope and that just being overwhelmed by the love of God for you. That is what causes you to be a godly person. It's not being godly causes God to love you. It's the other way around. So how do you abide in Christ? You must be persuaded that Christ loves you. So that is the greatest way that we can abide in the true vine, to be convinced that He is um, our only source of salvation and that He, in fact, does love us. So in closing, I want to ask you the following questions. And these are the same questions I asked at the beginning. Number one, do you recognize that Jesus is the true vine? And that there is salvation and life in Him and Him alone? Do you, do you recognize that? Secondly, are you bearing fruit for the Lord? And then thirdly, are you abiding in Christ? Now no one can answer those questions for you. It's between you and God. But don't let this day come to an end without taking some time to get along with God and answer those questions honestly and see where you fall. And if you find yourself lacking... Go to the true vine because He is the only source of salvation. And he, he promises that if you come to Christ, that He will receive you, that He is 
Never cast out anyone who has come to him looking for salvation. So with that said, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Oh Lord, we are overwhelmed by that that love and grace that you have shown us. Father, it is amazing that you should call us your friends. Father, help us to just to freshly think about the gospel and about what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, may it cause our hearts to um, long and desire to be more Christ-like and, um, and in so doing that we would bear fruit for you and, and be pleasing in your sight. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone um, here or who is listening online that does not know Christ, that they would go to the true vine and find that he is the only source of life. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand as we sing, please.
seem to fall weak and can always have problems when you use them. But I want to use an illustration somewhat off the cuff, and I'm sure it will have faults. Um, <clears throat> I have a, a bowstring that my first cousin and I made years ago, my first cousin that Two days or two days difference in us. He was born July 8th, I was born July 10th. And he was killed when he was 16. When we were 16, he was killed in a car accident as well. And we made a bowstring together years ago when we were about 12 or 13 years old, something like that. And I, I've ended up with that bowstring. It's still in, the, in those plastic tubes that shoestrings come in. You know what I'm talking about? Boot, boot string. And I, the bowstring's in that plastic tube. And it stayed in my gun rack in different places. And, but that's where it is. It's just a string we had. And we, we, we wound it together and we braided it. Had, I, don't know, I, don't even, I don't even know the bow that we had at that time. But we used it for a bow string, made a bow string. We got electrical tape around the end of it. That's where we put it together. So that's one of my treasures. And when I see that bow string, I don't see it often. I have to go home and find it, dig it out somewhere. But when I see that bowstring, it reminds me of him. And I'm sure you have things. It could be a Bible. It could be a gun. It could be a whatever. Or something that you, or somebody that you love that has passed away, that you've kept, keeps it. That when you see it, it may be a picture, but whatever it is, it's something that you have that when you see it, uh, it obviously reminds you of that person that you love that is now no longer with us, that's passed away, that's dead. Um, but it's a, it's a keepsake, it's something that reminds you of that person. Little Tyler, as he was preaching, talked about. Um, those last hours before the uh, death of Jesus, it was a very intense time. And the Gospel of John is compressed. It's really compressed. And it focuses your vision on that, that time. <clears throat> well, it was during that time, of course, that the Lord gave the Lord's Supper. And, and rehearsing that in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage we often read, when it comes to the time to serve the Lord's Supper, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, on the night when he was betrayed, knowing what's going to occur, and that night, and just 
few hours now, he would be betrayed and he would be crucified. Took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, not in the same way that we have remembrances is, is, is the cup in the, is the bread in the cup. It's not, it's not the same thing. Because in this, by faith, the Lord does actually commune with us and we with him. It's, this is different. But I can think of those early disciples and I can think every time they had the cup and they had bread, that's where their mind goes, that's where their heart goes. And so it's a, we just heard the word preached and now we have I think it was Luther that talked about, uh, or maybe in Calvin, I can't recall off the top of my head, but talked about the Lord's Supper is a, is a visual sermon. This is it. And it's what the Lord gave us. And as we take the bread, as we take the wine, it is a declaration. This is my body, this is my blood, this is what was given for you. Now receive it in faith. This is the declaration of Christ that he died on the cross for you. Receive this in faith. Do you believe that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all your sins? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was buried and rose again on the third day? Then receive this in faith. And that's what we're doing. And Christ, in those intense moments, gives this to his church, to his family, to his disciples. And it's to be observed until he comes again because we need that. We need that declaration. We need that affirmation and reaffirmation. It is a means of grace. It does strengthen our faith. And we do commune with Christ when we receive in faith that which he's given to us. And so we come now to receive the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do much like we did the last time. And we're going to do like we did the last time. Rather than us going around and handing out, I'm going to ask you to come up and get your bread. And after everybody has gotten their bread and been seated, we'll have a prayer of thanksgiving. Then we'll partake. Uh, I think I counted 17. How many people do we have? 17. 17? Now, isn't that providence? <laughs> we did not, that was done prior. We did not know. So that is providential. If I'm, if I'm wrong, I got wrong twice because I counted twice. Okay, I did a quick a minute ago. I stood up when you were singing. I did a quick around. I, I thought I had 17, but I wanted to be sure. 18. 18. 18. Oh, Tanya came in. 18. Oh, she snuck in. Yeah, I forgot. John, you Pastor John will do your honors, sister. He'll get the bread out for you while we're doing this in this moment. And uh, when we come to the, to the, to the cup, Right here is wine, and right there is grape juice. Okay? So that's, the, that's the distinction there, so that you know. All right. So, um, so we'll start over here on this side for the bread. So you can you can leave the saucer if you want to. Just get the bread in your hand if you want to. Or you can take the saucer with you. But please come and get your bread, and just go down this side, and we'll come to the middle of this. One at the same time? Uh, yeah. Yes, if you want to, go ahead and get your...
cup if you want to. That'll save you a trip back. Thank you, brother. That, that's great because you this is one. And I'll read the passages in the left for a moment. passage in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Pastor John, would you offer prayer, and then we'll protect about bread. Lord Jesus, we are truly grateful for the sacrifice you made on our behalf. We're grateful and thankful for your active obedience and your passive obedience through which we are redeemed before God. We are remember you in this act of eating bread. We also, by faith, Lord Jesus, are partaking with you in this act. And so, Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen us as we go forward. Cause us all to truly abide in Christ as he abides in us. As Jesus said, we must partake of his flesh. And so we spiritually partake of him now. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray there. Lord Jesus, again we take the cup in our hands and we are honored that we can proclaim your death. And we can, in faith, receive this cup. And be encouraged by the fact and reality that we can be justified, we are justified by your righteousness, not only of your active obedience, but of your passive obedience as you died for our sins. As Christ, as our Lord, as our Father laid upon you our sins, and by your stripes we are healed. And we take this cup and we Remember your death and we enter into communion with you and ask that you strengthen the faith of all of us now, Lord, as we partake of this cup of the, of the new covenant until that day that we all will drink new with you at your coming again. In your holy name we pray. Amen. would stand for the benediction and then we will sing the doxology. We can do that. I'll probably just start us off if you May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings